The journalistic norm of keeping a distance with your sources is, to me, an abstract concept, as removed from reality as living alone on an island. My sources are my schoolmates, relatives, and family members, and those death counts flashing on your screens contain my first lovers, teachers, neighbors, and friends. So that was a um, small excerpt from an essay by Zena Erheim uh, that's uh, in a book that we're going to be talking about today called uh, Are Women on the Ground, which is an edited collection of essays um, by uh, female Arab journalists edited by Zahra Henker. And this is obviously a topic that we have a lot to say about and that I think interests us both um, a lot and and a number of the contributors to this volume are also like friends or people we know um, uh, so that's what we'll be talking about on episode 33 of the Bulak podcast uh, reading to you was Marsha Links Quayley and Hello. Had, this is uh, Ursula Lindsay um, and, uh, but before we get into the book uh, there's a couple uh, items of literary news to cover. One is a bit of a validation for you, Marsha, because the <laughs> book that you really like won a major award. Yes, Jochel Hardy's Celestial Bodies, translated by the brilliant Marilyn Booth, won the Man Booker International. Uh, and as much as I dislike first, it was the first Arabic novel to win the Man Booker International prize, which is a major international literary prize. And we'll link in the show notes to this, but we discussed the book at some length in a previous episode. Yes. It's a sort of multi-generational saga featuring um, mostly fem- mostly female characters. Yeah, it centers norm- on three sisters. And uh, the morning after her uh prize win, I had one of those short 30-minute slots with Marilyn and and Jocha. And because her next novel also centers on sort of a a triangle of characters, and I'd asked her, what's the deal with three? And she she kind of looked at me because it was, they switched me to FaceTime at the last moment, even though I was in my pajamas with my hair kind of going crazy. But she just looked at me like, no, there's nothing, three, no, there's nothing to three. Just a good number. It's just a good number, apparently. But this is a very, I think, I think a well-deserved win. I mean, I haven't read uh, the other books uh, that were up for the award, but uh, in terms of, it was a beautiful translation. We both yes. were very impressed with that, and and just a really strong, interesting novel from Oman, which I don't think has a sort of international literary profile hardly no, not at even all. a regional literary profile for the most part. I think there was a lot of commentary. Uh, the next day, uh, I think generally the commentary was very positive. Go team, we we won this prize. Oh, but also, you know, well, it, it was not long listed for the International Prize for Arabic Fiction. It did win the Omani Novel Prize uh, it, when it came out, but it did not receive the kind of regional acclaim that some that, for instance, uh, Ahmed Saadawi's uh, Frankenstein in Baghdad, which was the previous Arabic novel that was shortlisted for the Man Booker International. So for some uh, Arabic critics, this book kind of came out of nowhere. And I think the Omani literary scene is not as well known as uh, 
you know, regionally and certainly internationally. Mm. But so I had asked Joho, well, who, who are who are the Omani writers who we should be reading, and uh, I now okay, <laughs> their names have all flown my, but my this brain. Was, but, but you wrote this up yes, on Arab Lit. I, I so did. we'll put it in the, we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. <laughs> yes. So but, it is it is um, it is a chance also to for people to you know to meet a new literature. I think I think there will be a growing interest now in Omani literature in general. Mm. Cool. And then the other thing that I would um, just wanted to share is that uh, so I have the piece that I wrote on the Syrian playwright Saad Alawanous uh, is just came out in the last issue of the New York Review of Books. And hopefully by the time this podcast is up, will be available briefly online. I mean, the the magazine is unfortunately um, a subscription, so, so but sometimes the essays are available for a win for a window of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, he's also somebody that we talked about uh, at quite some length in a previous episode, um, and, uh, and 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 really a, a very interesting literary figure for me to have discovered. So um, that was the sort of a pleasure to find out who he was. Um, and get a chance to talk about him a bit. Uh, and I will be seeing his daughter, Dima Winus, in a couple of weeks at the Shebek Festival in London. Uh, so that's exciting. So I actually wanted to um, read her work, but it wasn't. I, uh, it doesn't seem to be out in English yet. That will be out. Uh, the Frightened will be out in English in translation by Elizabeth Jaquette next year. It was originally slated for this year, but I think they slipped it to next year. Okay. Yeah, I'm quite curious to read that. Um, and to the point where I think it's been translated into Italian, and I tried to, I had this idea of I maybe I could get somebody to send it to me from Italy, but I figure I'll just wait for the English translation to come out. So the Shebek Festival then is when... It is, I believe, at the, I, I have my tickets, but I don't remember exactly. I think at the end of the month, I think June 30th, it's a Sunday that is the full-on literature day from 8 a.m. until And this 6 is in the UK? It is in London, and it has previously been held at the British Library. I assume that's where it is again. And you're also, so you're going to this festival at the end of the month, and then you're just back from Lagos. I'm just back from Lagos, which was so fantastic. It was amazing. I was there as part of, um, it was a 10-month fellowship uh, for 10 different uh, young people. And this was the uh, fellowship in literary criticism. And this was the capstone. So three of us were flown in to Lagos from different regions of the continent, uh, and we all sort of amazingly, since we didn't know each other previously, really complemented each other very well in terms of what we spoke about. I was very practical. Let's write a pitch together. Um, you know, uh, what different forms of book criticism are going on right now? Uh, and then at the end, we all wrote a pitch together. Um, the, the student fellows were amazing. Two of them are now right. One of them is writing for a piece for Arab Lit. One of them is writing a piece for Arab Lit Quarterly. Cool. They've all got amazing projects going on. And it really did uh, um, drive home how much com- literary conversation does go through these tiny uh, holes in New York City and London. So the, the 
the Nigerian works that are translated into Arabic and are known, you know, north of the Sahara are largely the people, you know, Nigerians who live, you know, Chimamanda, for instance, who are popular in New York and London. And the same, you know, with Arabic, it goes through. Right. Um, that everything but I sort think of goes so back many, to the center right. and there's no, within the, and I'm going to put this in enormous quotes, like periphery, there's no, like, contact within the different places on the periphery of the literary right. scene. Like and they, I think one of the things we were talking about was how what what do we do about this? Because, for instance, Stella Gaetano, who is um, a short story writer in South Sudan, who I'm very excited about, um, is very close to Kenya, where Otiano is, is looking to start his own uh, publishing house. And wouldn't it be great to kind of co-publish that in Kenya rather than uh, having it available in New York and then and in and then how are readers in Kenya gonna gonna get it anyway. Right. So um, you know, I think there needs to be a lot more co-publishing uh, in this because things are, you know, having things available online and ebooks solves some things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think more co-publishing agreements could address other issues. Okay. How does that help? Okay, so right now, for instance, Withered Flowers, although I hear that 40 copies of it are winging their way to me presently, uh, I don't know what, I'm going to like hand sell them or something out on the street. But so right now it's only available in Juba, in uh, in South Sudan. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the only place you can buy it, either in English or in Arabic. Uh, You can't buy a copy online, you can't. If there was a co-publishing agreement, somebody could pay for the rights, print Mm -hmm. um, 5,000 copies in in Kenya, sell it there. She also gets the royalties um, from selling it there on the ground to paper copies of the book. Uh, You know, you could make the same deal with a publisher in Lagos. So rather than trying to ship books back and forth places... Oh, sure. But how is that different than selling the rights in, like... So you're not because you're not selling translation rights. You're just co-publishing it with another. But you're selling publishing rights to a different publisher, Mm -hmm. and that's not common. Not currently. It doesn't seem to be. Okay. Certainly, uh, there's. It's very common between the U.S. and U.K. Right. So somebody will publish a U.S. edition. Somebody else will publish a U.K. edition. So be something similar to that. Exactly. You'd have a national edition of these works. Right. Sounds good to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Oh, um, all right. Well, so you had a great time in Lagos. You're off to London. Um, And in the meantime, we're going to talk a little bit um, about uh, this book uh, entirely written by female reporters from this part of the world. um, And which is, I mean, we got an advanced copy, but I'm pretty sure it's, uh, oh, no, it comes out, I think, in August. Yes, it comes out at the tail end of the summer. I right. put this on my summer, this is what you should be reading this summer, but here's the, you know, end of summer bonus. Right, right. Um, and uh, so the editor, uh, Zahra Hanker, talks a bit about, in her in her introduction, talks a bit about um, what made her decide to put this collection together, which was basically that she, she sort of felt like she's a reporter herself, Um and she felt that basically the region was mostly being covered 
by Western correspondents and by male correspondents, and that there was um, obviously that there would be a huge benefit um, to hearing the voices of more uh, women from the region. Or it's worth saying a lot of the contributors are both either people who grew up their entire lives in Arab countries or quite a few of them are sort of dual nationals um, because that does allow you to have this ability basically to kind of like function between cultures, linguistically, culturally, everything. That's like a very, in my experience, a very common profile for like a lot of great journalists is that they're like mm. Arab Americans or Arab. I mean, I know mostly Arab Americans because I work in the English language press. And so you can kind of operate as a translator basically between the two. Right. And I just would, I would say that, so even though white reporters are often the face of many stories, of course, many people go into building a good news story. So, you know, fixers uh, and translators and other people on the ground. So I think there are no dearth of Arab women and Arab men journalists working in, in the region, even if this, the name you see at the top of the piece is. Right. I mean, and I'd also I'd actually go so far as to say in, in my time in Cairo, I knew a lot of female reporters and a lot of of Arab female reporters as well who did get the byline. Like, I thought things were already shifting pretty visibly. Like, mm -hmm. it was not a bunch of middle-aged white guys who were writing most of the stories. Right. Well, I, I guess I, I only ever worked for uh, Egyptian women uh, when I worked in Cairo as my editor. I mean, I worked for Lina. I, uh, so Lina Atala, who's one of the contributors to mm -hmm. this collection, who... So you worked at Egypt Independent? Mm -hmm. or, I okay. did. And okay. Al Masri Al before we made it Egypt Independent, I think. Right. So yeah, we should say... And I, I also also worked with Lina. I worked at, when she created Mada Masr, which is to this day this incredible independent bilingual band site in Egypt, but that you can access from outside of Egypt if that's where you're listening from. Um, I, I worked for a year there before leaving, and she's amazing. And she has a great essay that's like very, very intellectually ambitious and sort of self-reflective about uh, speaking from a feminist, about what kind of feminism uh, is involved in like being a female journalist in the Arab world and being asked to speak as a female journal Arab journalist, right? right. Mm -hmm. Sort of being asked, what's it like to be a female Arab journalist? And she kind of goes through the process of not really thinking that question was relevant to her um, because she didn't want to be sort of pigeonholed uh, that way to then engaging with it later on, um, which is one of many essays where people are like really honest about their uh, changes in views, about their like insecurities, about their doubts. Like, there's I think one of the really wonderful things that this collection does is it allows people to question the entire premise of the collection uh, in their essays. It allows people to go off an entirely different direction. There are people who have left journalism, people who are still engaged in journalism. There's one piece that ends extremely darkly. Uh, yeah, there's some stories of like real loss uh, and where there's no redemption to that loss. Uh, the, so the, one of the things that stood out 
to me from the essays, and I'd like to hear what you think, is just the number of times that these women describe feeling guilty. Yes. Well, the thing that I um, really uh, embraced and really enjoyed about this collection is, I, I guess, yes, first, when I saw the outside of, of this book and when I saw the idea of it, maybe my first impression was something like Lena's, like, well, women journalists are, are journalists and they are approaching stories as stories. Uh, what is the frame of Arab women have, you know, it, it, it'll sell a book, but what does it really have to do with anything? But at the end of this, um, I, I, I felt that so much of what I read about people's personal experience of recording, uh, reporting rather, and, um, rep and essays about reporting is so macho. And they may be men who have kids back home, but they certainly don't tell us about their, their three kids or how their kids felt when they were shot in, uh, or when they, how their kids felt when they saw on TV that daddy was kidnapped. Um, that I just don't feel that that enters into the discussions about reporting Whereas these uh, were so personal and real, and 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 yes, uh, and, and guilt was and, such an important part of it, and vulnerable. So like and the vulnerable. opposite of much. I think that's the sort of thing. Is I don't, I'm not sure that male, and especially that a lot of the women featured in this collection are like war correspondents. Like they are women who work at the front lines in situations of great conflict. Mm. Um, so they're like, they're really, they're tough. And the male equivalent of that does not, I mean, it seems unlikely to me that they would sort of talk about so openly about the, these kinds of feelings. So there's like multiple forms of guilt. And I wanted to read one, one, one little bit. Um, there is... An essay um, by Natasha Yazbek, where it's sort of the guilt of of exercising the profession at all. Like it right. feels the like guilt it, of making a living off it. I think also right, which I think is something that a lot of journalists feel. But then she has a particular form of it because of basically her um, dual nationality mm -hmm. and kind of uh, f feeling that. You know she's betraying mm -hmm. uh, one one country by reporting on it for another. So this is just part of it. I mean, it's it's so emotional. Um, she says, "I need forgiveness every day because complicit does not begin to describe it, to write from and in that same pipeline that disfigured my people, my history, my land, my family, to write in the very language and for the very people who did it." which is also your language, and who are also your people, and to do it so that you are liked, so that you are tagged, to be popular because your brand is your currency, to sell out every minute of every day and to be thanked for your part in our very disfiguration, to be willingly complicit in this, in the fact that my tax dollars fund the wheels on the planes bombing the babies of my people. I need forgiveness every day. I mean... <laughs> Part of like, one of my reactions is to be like, oh, you know, sweetie, give yourself a break. Like, it's so hard on herself. Mm. Um, I think, obviously, there is there is this generalized guilt as, as a journalist. Yeah, like, making a living, covering these stories where, like, you don't 
stop things from happening. You don't affect change for the most time. And you kind of wonder if you're just part of a... An entertainment machine. Right, Mm -hmm. right. And then in particular, if you are someone who has the job you have because of your ability to gain access to people uh, in, in, in the Arab world because of your lang- linguistic uh, competency, because of your own uh, culture and background, and then you use that access to further your career within the Western media, I guess there's this added layer of guilt. I don't know. I mean, there, there's such a range of uh, of opinions and responses in this collection. I feel like that that was uh, it was a necessary thing to say. I mean, uh, of course, you don't. W- uh, well, maybe she does wake up every morning feeling this sort of crushing guilt. Uh, but I, you know, I think it's a it's a lens through which to examine these relationships. That's Right, because then for, 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 I mean, there's many other essays in which, in which people express, you know, very strong commitment and belief in sort of, you know, the value of the profession, let's say, writ large, um, and uh, the importance of, you know, say uh, you have the uh, there, there. I thought there was a very moving essay by that female Yemeni photographer mm. who talks about um, something that seems a little trite, but it's just that in the context of her essay and how she gets to it, it doesn't anymore. That she wants to show images of Yemen that that aren't just the starving baby and the male fighters. But they, you know, give a range of the things that she finds beautiful and she finds moving and the life that goes on and the life that she hopes will sort of return to this country. And, you know, also the after she's described the incredible sacrifices she has to make to exercise the profession at all. I mean, she's 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 photographing while fully face veiled. Like she there's a million places where she can't go. She has to be home every night. Like yeah, she's never gonna get married. Like the hardest she of just matter of factly yeah. states that she's never gonna get married because of her job. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, there's the other thing is it is incredibly humbling, some of these essays. Like you just you know I I don't even feel like I exercise the same job as these people. Like it's weird to say for me to say I'm a journalist and she's a journalist, like she does something completely different. Mm. The level of risk, the level of dedication is, yeah. Well, I, I mostly am a journalist from inside my apartment, so. Right. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, really, uh, it, it's, 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 it's really amazing. Um, and, and so you also have those, um, you also have essays by people who, by women who are very, uh, I mean, so you have uh, people who have who are very ambivalent, uh, and and by ones who are you know very decided on 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 what the meaning and the purpose of what they're doing is. Right, and I think I was most moved by the essays by people who had left reporting. Actually, uh, particularly, I was almost overwhelmed by by the essay by Anthony Shadid's wife, Nada Bekri, who writes about how how she was, how she did work. They were some of the happiest and most rewarding years of my life, 
I loved being reporter and was proud of my work. I was married to the man I loved. I became a mother. That night in Antakya, I became a widow. And so it is about conflict reporting, stealing her life from her, and and that not being redeemed. Um, so so. Yeah, although a person's life can fall apart in that way, regardless of what their job is, right? Sure. I mean, uh, but I agree that that one was, and, and that just ends without her having really recovered from this, and which is a very sort of honest and kind of uncomfortable place for it to end. But But I appreciated that there was no attempt to sort of sugarcoat this or massage it into something uh something different yeah there's no epiphany there is no redemption right um i cannot account for the last six years of my life she says yeah yeah she refers to the year of magical thinking by joan didion and there are some echoes between those two joan didion's book and and this essay as well yeah, I mean, that's the thing is hers is almost to me, it tra- I mean, it transcends anything specific to this job or this part of the world. And it's just a story about having your life shattered, um, which can happen anywhere and under any circumstances. Obviously, in these essays, you do find much more often than not these very extreme stories about colleagues uh, dying about the people, the, the, the reporters themselves, uh, you know, nearly dying. Um, and about, that's another form that this guilt takes. It's like, you know, a lot of these reporters have spouses and have children, and they talk, some of them, quite openly about wondering if they sacrificed, you know, their family's well-being or their connection with their children when they were little to their careers um, which again, I think is something that women are going to talk about more openly and differently than men. Right. I think that also this being essays, essays by Arab women reporting from the Arab world, it opens up that space more. Because I think, I mean, speaking as a white American woman, I, if I were writing a, a, an essay in a collection, particularly if it was with men, I think I would also... I feel this need to be macho because because it is this space where you're allowed to maybe you can talk about uh, I felt guilty and I left journalism I I did I took a job in PR and now I do that and and I do spend more and I'm I'm not worried now that my kids are gonna be orphaned Uh, so yeah I, I would not expect to see this kind of grappling with you know what some male reporters must feel. <laughs> right, right. No, they must. I mean, I think it's also a question of what men are allowed to say. I think that probably they have, you know, deep and conflicted feelings about it as well. But um, I was looking for, uh, I think, one of the essays about someone who is a reporter and then leaves it... Uh, is the one by Asma Al-Ghul, who's who's from the Gaza Strip. Right, and is also an excellent short story writer. So I wondered, I thought about you reading this book because she talks a lot about going back and forth between journalism and literature. Mm. And 
um, feeling like she could only dedicate herself to one or the other. Uh, and uh, so she actually says, uh, literature and writing nourished me while journalism was a sacrifice. Every time I wrote as a journalist, I felt like I was losing my ability to write literary prose. Journalism also caused me to lose my sense of self as I was focused on external things, people in wartime, instead of internal ones. I mean, I just, I mean, that I was sort of caught my interest, that question of writing fiction versus writing journalism. I mean, I probably generally agree with it. You have to, to be good at anything, you have to be sort of exclusively focused mm-hmm. on it. So probably one does have to choose. Although, so so she writes in Arabic, and this is one of the essays that's translated from Arabic uh-huh. in the collection. And I think uh, to completely overgeneralize, in, in, Amer- in Anglophone American literature, it's much more likely that you're taking a, a job teaching literature or in teaching and also writing, you know, and among many careers. Whereas in Arabic, uh, so many novelists, short story writers, um, and poets who I know are also journalists. So I think this is a very common... Um, double profession? Double profession, yeah. And I some people, I think, can make the interviewing and the things that they learn as journalists somehow feed their literature. But of course, it's a very specific genre. And, and as she, you know, as she says, it's, it's tugging you in a very different direction. Well, it is reactive. Like, journalism is very reactive. I mean, um, I wonder about this sometimes. Like, when I first started, when I really first started as a journalist, I started because I was interested, actually, in literature and writing. Mm -hmm. And it was just, like, exciting to be able to write anything that would get published. So that's what brought me into journalism was the desire to write. And I remember thinking in the beginning, like, is this making my writing better or worse? Because... So it's true that journalism is very cliche-driven. It's very formatted. Right. Um, and so you, it can produce lots of terrible writing. Most journalistic writing is not great, amazing writing. Like, that's it's not... very workmanlike writing, most of it. Right. That's not and that's the kind point. Of what, okay, so I didn't go to journalism school. I got into journalism because after graduation, I thought, what is the one white-collar job I could get? What's the one thing I know how to do, which was how to write? So that's how I did. Um, but I think in, in journalism school, a lot of what you're taught is, is uh, you know, how to produce a very workmanlike craft piece of, of craft work that that does its job. Right. That fulfills its function. I mean, of course, if you look at like magazines and stuff like that, if you look at sort of like New Yorker essays or whatever, yes. there's a, there's yes. a, that, those are beautifully written pieces. And I think a lot of journalists are aspire to be that kind of a writer Mm. like there's a lot of people with writerly aspirations and they want to write books on the side and maybe they have had an interest in fiction like a lot of the reporters i know especially print reporters like they enjoy reading and writing and they have those kinds of ambitions too i think the one there are a lot of newspapers you know there's the fairmont sentinel in addition to the new york times you know there's a lot of just small town newspapers of people grinding out stories about the local city council meeting Yeah. And I mean, and it's not to put that down because that is a craft and it and it can be done really well. And it's just it's just not, you know, the main thing about that isn't 
ha- isn't the sort of style of this writing. But I mean, to, to, to sort of inform people clearly and engagingly day after day about what's going on, like that is a valuable craft of its own. Um, but anyway, I've always wondered, I, I mean, I think there's a few good things you can learn from journalism and apply to your writing, like this sort of general principle that like you need to get and keep people's attention. Mm. Mm-hmm. is I think that what she's talking about about journalism being outward focused rather than inward focused like journalism teaches you to like pay attention to people and details and scenes and things and not make the story about you where like most young writers want to write like a long personal autobiographical essay in the right, first person right. and it's actually not bad practice to be forced to just go out there and write about other things right and another thing that I noticed in in early writing is is that you enter the piece without telling us what it's about. Um, people who didn't go to journalism school and get the, you're supposed to, drilled with the, you know, the low, front load, the, uh, the mm-hmm. paragraph. And so they're kind of like, well, I don't even know what, you know, some of the, the reviews I get from people who haven't written before. Like, what, what book is this even? I'm like in paragraph six before I even know what we're talking about here. Right. So yes, some of the, Put the person on solid ground so that they can see what they're looking at. Uh, you can learn in journalism as well as in literature. Yeah, although it has the, I think it has the ability also day in day out to kind of blunt your sensitivity to language and to sort of make you a little bit too reliant on formulas. Absolutely, and things like that. And I think Lena, to go back to her, is one of the few people I've worked with in journalism who is who was so anti these cliches and who, who was when I worked with her so anti this formalism was always constantly like, let's do something totally different. Let's do something completely off right. the wall. Let's do something that nobody has ever written about in culture pages in a newspaper ever before. Yeah, Mother Master has been very like f- experimental in terms of the format of their, of their stories and the way they tell their stories as well. That's true. That's a, there's a sort of creativity there that's really nice. Yeah, so experimental newspaper writing, I think, is a very <laughs> small niche. I think that's right. where Lena is. Yeah. Um, what else is there? I mean, so obviously the other thing that comes up in the book a fair amount is is uh, is just the like particular challenges that you face. As a as a female reporter, like really gender based challenges, uh, there's the there's the reporters that discuss like traveling through rebel and uh, uh, Islamic militant held parts of the country and having to have a male guardian right. at all times, uh, and so like ha- carrying around the IDs of the female relatives of all of her male colleagues so that she can pretend to be somebody's right. like cousin or sister, or, which is something I, I've, I love these little details. I love hearing the problem, hearing the work around like this is this is really I like I like this sort of like on the ground stuff. And then there was that like infuriating essay by the Egyptian journalist, uh, photojournalist Iman Halal mm. about the harassment that she faced at what is clearly Al-Ahram newspaper, I think. Right. I th- no, sorry. I think it's Al-Masri Al-Yom, the Arabic edition. Because uh. I went and, I like, after reading the anecdotes, I went and Googled her CV because I was like, I just need to know, like, what paper these assholes work at. And, I mean, it just, you know, where her, she, she's, like, 
you know, harassed by a male colleague on her first foreign reporting trip and then can't tell her bosses because she's afraid they'll never send her abroad again. Right, right. And I think that's it. So uh, my first experience with journalism was being harassed by a male colleague. But but yes, I did not feel that if I reported it, there would be... uh, there would be consequences for me. I mean, nothing happened to him, but... But you could report it. But I could report it. I mean, her... And she's... And I had I had seen her photos before because she did this incredible long photo essay project that is about street harassment in Cairo. Mm. And there are images that I think probably you've run across. Like, they've really widely circulated. Um, and so she kind of made this sort of some of the things that she faces. But she has a quote in there where she says, you know, it was crazy to me that basically, you know, they would, you know, not send me on certain assignments because it was supposedly not safe. But it was like not safe for me anywhere, not in the office, not on the street, like right. not in my neighborhood, like nowhere was safe. It wasn't going to cover right. some news event right. that wasn't safe. Right. Her whole essay just like made my blood pressure rise so much. It was so maddening. So maddening, but also so visceral and real and yeah, dead no, on. No, absolutely. Um, and that's something that comes up like in multiple essays. And again, I think it is, um, I mean, it's different than like a foreign woman reporter going to this part of the world and complaining about the harassment she faces, which is something one has every right to do. But I think their point of view, like coming to the decision to engage in these professions with everything that that entails from inside the culture, a lot of them start their essays talking about conflicts they had with their families when they were teenagers or young women, like before they even became journalists. And journalism is just part of this trajectory of, you know, wanting to be really different and do something that you're supposedly not allowed to do. Right. Well, Lena's essay, sorry to return to Lena. Oh, yeah, again, go ahead. Go ahead. Is, you should read it. It's also, um, you know, in part a conversation with her father. Uh, or was it I who ultimately grew up not wanting the dolls you'd always gifted me and losing faith in that engulfing sense of security simply because I didn't need them anymore? My growth might have been a natural evolution, a coming of age. It also could have been tainted by the ways in which I sometimes associated fatherhood with notions of societal patriarchy and the violence of parenting. Have I conflated your subject into that, the state in my growing up, with our patriarchal families being an inspiration for political authoritarianism and a site for the embodiment of its control? Did you come to represent me the very type of control I intended to fight against? So she's talking to her, in in the essay she's talking to her father who you know in so there's a controlling state who is you know uh, censoring the the uh the journal that she is the one of the founding editors of um and and you know the pushback of her, her you know the the father in his position and and yet, you know, of course, she has a, a tenderness to him as well. And she's constantly questioning her relationship to him and her family and and how he, you know, he disapproves of her um, of her of her choices. And uh, well, and that disapproval, which can just come from fear also, I mm. think, for a number of the contributors changes over time, like they're 
the way their family views them and their work in some cases evolves and there are stories of parents sort of not being supportive and becoming sort of at least having also the feeling of being proud of the achievements even as they remain concerned. And in any case, you're hearing from people who have managed to do it, like they're not been in the situation where their family has actually prevented them from doing so. So even if they're not, you know, perhaps receiving enthusiastic support, they are free enough to, to engage in, in this. Um, And, you know, not to romanticize how liberating journalism can be, because I don't think that's anyone's intention in these essays. It is a very, it is a much more, like you say, kind of constantly questioning, like, why am I doing this? What am I getting out of it? Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what are other people getting out of it? Uh, what am I ultimately doing? Am I, should I be writing literature instead? How am I participating right. in the culture? Am I, am I... Yeah, am I doing this for the for the clicks and turning some you know turning tragedy into entertainment? Right, or or you know, am I managing to save any of these people who I care about tremendously? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the stories about co- covering this, the war in Syria, Syria yeah. um, you know, are all devastating uh, because it's also there are people who get into journalism at the time that this very exciting thing is happening. It's the story of their lifetime and of their own country and then if it ends up you know they have to leave all their contacts are you know dead pretty much or in exile or have become isis members i mean uh so 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 these are really really hard uh accounts to read um but i was just going to say on that issue of like how free you are not one of the things that struck me too is um in one of the essays is someone talks about um, basically how living this crazy life where she thought she might die from one day to the next or one week to the next was bizarrely liberating. Right. Like on a personal level because she, you know, didn't have to worry about the future, didn't really have to worry about consequences. That may be a high that war reporters in other parts of the world and, you know, other times also feel. I think there is this kind of... Uh, living in the moment quality to it but for her it's also in part of this essay where like the whole one of the themes of the essay has been sort of how to be a free woman Mm. in her country and in this really messed up way because of course the trauma comes back it hits her after but in the moment she goes through this period where and she writes about it very well I think where it makes her feel kind of you know devil may care like right well that part was very fun to read actually it was like kind of a road trippy right excitement to it <laughs> yeah knowing that yeah you may be bombed or run off the road or whatever at any moment so play the music really loud and enjoy enjoy your time yeah and i like that too i like in a lot of the essays like again these sort of details about the moments that people find uh exciting or where they get away with something or where they figure something out, they figure out how to do their work, mm-hmm. um, are, are very strong. I could totally see uh, sharing essays like this. You know, for the last year and a half, I've taught journalism students. Like, I would totally assign a couple essays from this collection to them for them to read. Like, it seems like the kind of thing that would be um, really good 
as a reading for people who are engaged in journalism as well. I mean, but that's the only thing that I ever teach. Right. Well, it's because I think it gets beyond how to report and how I reported this. And it's also about how to live as a journalist, uh, how to think about yourself and think about what you do in a very personal way with, that I think, you know, students and anyone could relate to. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, and I think you could use it to talk about essay writing in general, how to approach a subject that in, in a fresh way, because uh, these essays are very different from, from other essays I'd, that I've read about conflict reporting and how do they approach it from a new direction, I think with this, this kind of sense of vulnerability. Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually kind of surprising to me that they managed to find so many fresh things to say uh, about kind of the same topic. I mean, there's a, I, I would say there's a little bit of repetition in the book, mm. which sort of serves to, as like certain themes emerge, because of course there are sort of a certain things come up again more than once right. for, for the contributors. But I'm, I mean, there's dozens of contributors, I think. I, can't, I don't know how many essays, but there's quite a few. And it does feel like the breadth of the different kinds of experiences, I mean, it ranges all across the region. Um, and, and, but the breadth of personal, emotional reactions and experiences and reflections is, is, is quite impressive. Yeah, from, you know, from ones where I was like, yes, yes, everything, yes, to one <laughs> of them where I was like, no, no, everything, no. <laughs> Can I ask you which one that was? No, but... Oh. <laughs> Well, I mean, and that's to be expected. Like, frankly, it would be weird if there weren't a few, I mean, where you where you read them and you were like, N actually, I disagree with it. I mean, because if they all sort of played it so safe that they didn't say anything that might rub you the wrong way right. or that yeah. you might disagree with. Well, I think um, there's also sort of a, um, a ideological range in, in the book in addition to a range of tones and ideas about the profession and places that people worked and ways in which people work. There's also different, yeah, uh, different attitudes towards the world. Yeah, yeah. And we should give a shout out. So one of the contributors um, is our good friend here, who's part of the time here in Morocco, Aida Alami. Yes. Um, who writes about her own experience, uh, the experience of a dear friend of hers who passed, who was killed um photographer who was killed in a terrorist attack and about a y another young Moroccan woman um, who lives in Paris and who she wrote about. And she's just one of several people that we, I mean, I know her, we know her quite well, but mm -hmm. then there's other contributors who have just, you know, someone like Hannah Alem, who I knew in Cairo, who again was like a rock star, like right. always, right. always right. and forever. And, you know, then there's other women who aren't contributors here, but I'm thinking about someone like Leila Fadl, who works for NPR today like there's a lot of incredible female reporters working in the region today and I think that is something you know I, I don't want to say to celebrate because that sounds, so, <laughs> that sounds so cheesy but this book manages to not just do that not just celebrate right and it doesn't sort of say that like other report like that only you know it doesn't it doesn't have a kind of tone of attack where it says like oh that you know the coverage has been 
terrible because it's so skewed because all these women do work and have been reporting all along. It's not like we haven't been hearing from them. We right. have been hearing from them. It's just this sort of makes you conscious of what their side of everything they've been giving you for the last 10 years or so has been like. You you have seen the stories they reported and here was what was happening meanwhile. I think that's it's a it's a wonderfully important thing to think about um, in the in the landscape of our information about the world. Yeah, and 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 very well. Like the, I think it, it strikes a very good balance and, and, and a very good tone. It's just been thoughtfully thoughtfully put together. Um, so that's our women on the ground, and it's coming out in August uh, with a forward by Christian Amanpour. Yes. Which is probably the part of the book that I was like not super interested in. Oh, but I didn't I'm read the forward. <laughs> but I'm, but it's nice that she's supporting this. <laughs> it, it is, it is, and she was. I don't know that much about her, but she was this kind of early face of I think something kind of momentous in American media. I don't know. She did. The, I think. I think for a certain generation of journalists, she was a really big deal. Yeah, I guess I, I'm usually disappointed in celebrity forwards, so I kind of right. I gave right. it a miss. But um, but if it gets more people into reading this essay collection, I'm excited. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure it will actually. Um, but that's not the reason to. It's really quite good. Yes. All right. So we're gonna say uh, goodbye for now, and uh, we'll be back. You know, within a couple weeks, if not sooner. Yes. All right, thank you for talking about this, Ursula. Great talking to you, as always. Bye. Bye.